Welcome to the Arsenal Democracy, a podcast from Hudson Institute. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. My guest today, Dr. Nadia Shadlow, is a senior fellow at Hudson Institute and a co-chair of the Hamilton Commission on Securing America's National Security Innovation Base. Most recently, she was U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy and led the drafting and publication of the 2017 National Security Strategy of the United States. In this conversation, we discussed how our inability to factor time into our calculations risks paralysis on critical issues, and the intersection of supply chains, national security, and critical technologies. Our weapon systems are dependent right now on externally produced components, so that creates a national security weakness. The free market is not naturally going to rectify that. So that's how, you know, we started to look at this problem. It would be great if businesses would say, okay, uh, we're going to put national security first and foremost, but most of them don't. Our system is not driven that way. They have to respond to shareholders. They have to respond to short-term earnings calls, which leads to a disconnect between our national security imperatives and, in some cases, economic profits or economic efficiencies. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. Dr. Nadia Shadlow, welcome to the Arsenal of Democracy. Thank you, Marshall. Pleasure to be here. I want to start with a diagnosis you offered recently um, in The Atlantic. You said that the United States is at risk of paralysis. What do you mean by paralysis when it comes to the space you work in? What I tried to do in that piece was to make a very simple point, which was that we don't consider time as an input into strategy. Um, and so what I meant by that is that we don't account for how long things take. And things have taken uh, a lot longer to accomplish things and reach objectives um, for many, many years now. And so what I meant by strategic, strategic paralysis was that uh, we risk uh, being unable to accomplish our strategic objectives because we can't move fast enough. We're not moving fast enough, and we're not actually even accounting for that. So I tried to argue that with data today, of which there's a lot, we have the data and probably the capabilities to start to ask policymakers, how long is something going to take? <laughs> and if something takes, if we know it's going to take two years, five years, seven years, 10 years, then we know we probably have a problem if these are near-term pressing threats. Because we're operationally paralyzed, because we can't get things done at that operational level of, of going from here to there, we risk strategic paralysis. Yeah, and I think a helpful way of contextualizing what you're describing, a world where time is not only factored in, but handled properly, would be the 1950s. Take us back to the strategic picture and challenges of the 50s and how at a national security level, we were able to accomplish goals in a timely manner by industry category, whichever you think is most relevant. Yeah, I think the conditions then were very different than today. Um, there was much less bureaucracy. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes in that article I came across when I was reading about the Manhattan Project and um, 
General Graves, who ran that project, was supposedly known as, quote, the biggest SOB around, who made decisions within a 24-hour time frame. Now, anyone who's been in government today knows that that's virtually unheard of, right? Um, so the conditions and the expectations, I think, were very different. Leaders had the ability to hire people quickly who they wanted, when they wanted. There was less need for crazy levels of coordination. Uh, there was this famous, you know, fast forward to today, there was a famous chart many years ago that made the front pages of the New York Times. And it was this incredibly complicated uh, PowerPoint uh, chart of, of all the at relationships in Afghanistan. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember that, Marshall? And I think I um, at the time, it, it might have been General McChrystal who said, once we understand that PowerPoint slide, you know, we will have won the war. <laughs> I wish I had a picture of it, but to make the point of the of the incredible layers of complexity that we have today, um, many of which we've put upon ourselves. So in the 50s, during the Cold War period, there was less uh, bureaucracy. And that's that's a big factor. There was a different regulatory environment. Capitol Hill functioned in a different way. Congress functioned in a much more collaborative way. So when people argue today that we need a moonshot or a Manhattan project or a solarium project, these are historical analogies uh, to when we accomplished things pretty well in the past. I kind of gently push back and argue that the conditions have changed today. So let's focus on recreating some of those conditions so we can move faster and more effectively. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to go into a specific example you offer up of the 50s because I think it really frames the issue properly. Um, you give the example of how in the 1950s, the newly independent Air Force was able to turn around the century series of fighters. So we're talking, you know, the F-102, the F-100, the F-104, F-105, five um, fighters, different roles in a five-year period um, in contrast to the long developmental cycle of the F. 35, putting those up in compare and contrast. I guess the question I'd ask for you, though, is that at a basic technological level, the F-35 is a 100 times more complicated. It kind of fills all of the roles of all of the five century series play, um, fighters, um, in, in, by the nature of it. So is it, is the fact that it takes so long to accomplish our moonshot goals today, aka create a modern fighter, the fact that things are just much more complicated now, separate from the bureau, bureaucratic question? Cause I think if the, if the, if the Pentagon was faced with the task of like, hey, produce five, 60s, 70s era fighters in five years, I think they'd be much more effective at approaching that rather than accomplishing the task of a fifth generation fighter that meets the challenge of a Chinese or a Russian uh, fighter uh, development. So I'm curious how you'd think about that. Yeah. Well, I learned about that actually from Will Roper, who I had the privilege of, of working with, um, you know, many years ago when he was at the Pentagon. And I, he, it's a really smart guy and used that, um, used that anecdote, that story in one of his speeches. And then I went back to look at that. So I wanted to, uh, to note that. Yes, there's complexity, but I, I do blame much more the regulatory bureaucratic acquisition process. Because on the other hand, today we're working with software that moves, you know, incredibly fast, right? It's a, you know, software is eating the world, all of that. So the software, all of the components are, are moved very quickly. Updates are made very quickly. So it's more, I think, the procurement and acquisition process. Yes, these are more complicated systems, but we're also aided by technology in them. You have a lot of smart people who understand the systems. 
but it's their ability to get things done in a timely way that ends up being hampered. There are, you know, hundreds of efforts at bureaucratic reform, at DOD acquisition and procurement reform, hundreds. And yet every year, we have the next big effort at, at reform. I argue we need to stop and first identify what have been the obstacles to reform in the past, which is much harder. Every policymaker wants to come in and say, I have this great new idea. This is my idea. It's a new idea. And I want to implement it. Very few policymakers come in and say, I want to figure out why 20 years of efforts have failed. <laughs> and then begin and figure out what you can get done um, after you figure that out. So if I'm ever in a policy position again, I would like to ask first, what have been obstacles to this in the past? Because it's probably not uh, a bright, shiny new idea, right? It's probably not. It might be. But most um, most often, I bet if you really look back, people are trying to kind of make that reform and have tried o over the years. Um, so I think we need to start by asking what prevented success in the past and not be partisan about it, right? Sometimes you just like to blame the previous administration for being stupid or ineffective um, as opposed to actually looking at some of the structural, regulatory, ongoing obstacles to the problem. As I'm thinking of your answer, I'm realizing that I kind of misstated the problem and that the challenge today is not that we need to churn out five new fighters in a five-year period. The point you're really making here is that during the 1950s, you had specific challenges and they were able to be completed um, in that timely manner. So it's not you sort of compare the F-35 of the Century Series um, in the way I framed it. So I guess the real question would be, if the task we're trying to work through today is not how do we come up with five new fighters, what are the broad tasks that we are trying to accomplish, especially coming from someone who worked on the 2017 National Security Strategy? How should we think of those big projects, those big tasks that we should be accomplishing? That's that's a big question. <laughs> what what I'll do is I'll highlight um, some of the tasks that we've been trying to get better at for many many years and really haven't had much success. So what uh, you know, one of these that kind of is a cross-cutting challenge is the problem of, of STEM, right? The problem of finding enough numbers of people who have the technical background to work in these cutting-edge areas on the technology side. Um, and if you go back, and I did, and look at President Obama's statements on STEM, and fast forward to every president since then, including the current president, President Biden, these statements are virtually identical, <laughs> which again goes to my point of we have been talking about the same problem for a long, long time. What we haven't been doing is identifying what works, and there are programs that do work, and then expanding them at scale. Right. So that's just one example. And STEM matters because we need people to work in all of these areas that are now that we find ourselves now in this technological competition with China and with other countries. So the tech competition is real and is something that we've been trying to work on as a nation. Um, the 2017 strategy really articulated it. I'm biased, but it did articulate it well, I think. It linked technology to the nature of our political system. It linked technology to undergirding our, our military systems. So it, it, it's not just technology in and of itself. It's that technology has a direct impact on the nature of our societies, the quality of our military, and obviously is a driver of economic prosperity. So that's why technology is important. 
Um, yet we have, we're continually having trouble in integrating technologies into our government, for instance, right? Um, DOD still struggles with our weapon systems might be great, and, and they are. Uh, but look at how the department itself is run, right? Look at anyone trying to do business with DOD and the, and the aggravation and, and the incredible frustration. And that's just one department, right? Look at across our government, the, the problem politically that we're having about how to manage sort of a more uh, an industrial policy, how to integrate government more effectively into being a problem solver for some of these challenges. And we can talk about that. Energy is a is a big problem and issue in, in understanding how how to advance um, you know our energy independence, uh, how to look at new po- possible new forms of energy. Fusion is out there. We have big challenges ahead of us. What you're writing, what you're articulating here, just makes sense on a very basic level in the sense that okay, if you have this big goal, the key thing you'd want to then have is. The, when are you going to accomplish that goal? What are the intermediate steps? It seems very obvious when you state it out loud. So at an implementation and policy level, what's going wrong here? This is so straightforward when we articulate this. I'm like, hey, I can't just say, I'm presidential candidate Marshall Kozlov. Our goal is to go to the moon and then applaud myself. There has to be a timeline. There has to be uh, a, a weighing and balancing of accomplishing that. So in the actual policy process, what's going wrong specifically? Uh, I think we're overemphasizing whole of government, which is probably for those listening, you know, will it's almost sacrilege to say. I think we overemphasize these concepts in which the more the merrier. I think we actually need to much more uh, need to move to a situation in which uh, one agency, one individual, one organization has the lead and has to drive change with other entities and organizations contributing, but not necessarily equal, right? You have a unity of command model, and that tends to often get things done more effectively in a more um, reasonable time frame. Now, I know I'll get a lot of pushback on that, but I do think if you look at programs that have been more effective um, in the past, PEPFAR, which was considered to be a very successful program, uh, that President Bush um, implemented to, uh, you know, to combat AIDS, right, to reduce AIDS, to, to work on the AIDS problem around the world. It was considered very successful, and it was essentially led by the State Department with other agencies contributing. I think today we've uh, we just continue to move toward more complexity as to um, more simplification. We need more simplification. We need to match authorities with money and responsibility. Congress needs to be more flexible, right? One of the problems recently we've seen in the in the war uh, right now and supplying Ukraine with weapons is providing enough orders for munitions to manufacturers. Uh, they like to see two-year orders, let's say, two-year timeframes, multi-year procurements. It's pretty sensible if you look at it. As a business person, it's pretty sensible. Uh, but Congress, you know, is really inflexible on some of these issues. So Congress is a big problem, too. But Congress certainly needs to work with the executive branch, too. They need to work in concert to identify problems that need to be solved. I think also, though, we have sometimes the wrong or outdated or an architecture that just needs to be rethought. Right. So if you look at the way China does development around the world, it really leads with infrastructure. Right. It leads thinking about um, economic development and infrastructure. Now, I, I know there are problems. Right. I know the nature of Belt Road and all of those problems. But 
What can we learn from that? We tend not to do that, right? We tend to lead with ensuring that labor labor laws are being followed. That's fine. We tend to lead with a values-based approach, and that's fine. We want to advance our values. We want to work with other countries to advance values that are good for successful societies. But we also need to acknowledge uh, that people also need, you know, a bridge to get to work. <laughs> they need the energy to supply uh, the power to their factory. So we need to also maybe rethink some of the, the ways that we've been doing things. And that's hard. And you need leadership to do that. Another strategic problem we're having is that we lack confidence in ourselves as a nation. And I had been thinking about kind of the sense of excitement and positiveness uh, that existed during, you know, the Marshall Plan years. I mean, there was a, a sense that we were rebuilding. It was difficult. A lot was being asked of everyone and especially Americans. But there was a sense that we were building towards something good democracy, economic growth based on capitalism. Uh, there was a sense of confidence that what we were building toward was a good thing. And I think sometimes today um, we suffer from that lack of confidence, which makes it harder to build the consensus and the coalitions to approach problems with that sense of energy. The follow-up and kind of gets at where this debate gets nitty-gritty is the confidence of post-war America was not just a thing that someone had conveyed to everyone. You're coming out of a world where um, the United States at a manufacturing level, at a leadership level, successfully led the efforts to defeat the Axis powers. You had the fact that much of the world had deindustrialized in that same conflict. So the American economy was at an unprecedented state. There were these very straightforward challenges in the early Cold War period, including the Marshall Plan to the moonshot. Ojo and Mulani were describing how does an America in 2023 get the same feeling of confidence without the same underlying basis or foundation of recent success? We need vibrant and positive political leadership. We need to point to successes, of which there are many. There are successes out there. There are communities that successfully overcome poverty and challenges and economic blight. There are schools in the country that work. Uh, there are, um, you know, factories uh, being built quickly. There are training programs that are working that companies are using to attract workers and train them and have them work and give them living wages. So there are successful stories all around the country. Uh, they tend not to be emphasized at scale. And I think that's something we need to do. I think at the state level, we need to look at the local level, the state level and highlight the good examples. And then you need political leaders and, and the public in other parts of the country demanding the same things, saying, well, that school district really seems to work. What did it do right? And what can we adopt? But I think there's a tendency in the media often to just focus on what's wrong, right? On the bad, on what's wrong, on the on the crime, on the sort of terrible stories that unfold. So that's not a new observation or necessarily original, but I do think it's the right way to go. To your point then of looking at success stories or possible solutions, I'd love for you to just discuss something you've also written about, which are these munitions campuses. So this is like a new uh, DOD approach to uh, approaching a lot of the munitions challenges that have come out of the war in Ukraine. I'd love for you to just give some example, because I bet most of the listenership has not heard of this. 
I wrote specifically about energetics, uh, which are the chemical compounds uh, that that go into munitions, right? They're the combinations of chemicals that make a munition um, lethal and accurate. So they're really important. And for many, many years, uh, we kind of lost our edge in this area. Everything from the sort of chemical engineers you needed to the factories and plants you needed, uh, we let all of that atrophy for many reasons. And these are not dual-use items, really. You really don't use energetics in a lot of other you know, commercial products, right? No one wants a munitions and energetics factory in their backyard. So this is an example where DOD really has to play a, a bigger role. And this is the campus idea in which the Defense Department or the government helps to provide um, the capital for some of the really expensive components that are needed to test new products. It's not a new idea, right? We have national labs around the country, and they have really expensive pieces of equipment that companies, small companies, innovative companies can come and use because not every company, most can't, you know, build a particle accelerator, let's say, right? That's really expensive to build. But if you have access to one, an innovative company can come in and test uh, their idea, their product in that. And in the same way, uh, DOD can help create um, some of the capital-intensive testing facilities you need to regenerate parts of our energetics enterprise. And to me, that's a really good example of public-private partnership. Uh, the Defense Department helps to pay for some of the expensive components, but innovative, uh, flexible, creative companies can come in, use those components, and figure out a faster way um, to market, to commercialize them. And it, it exists for other other areas, too. Um, the Defense Department is thinking about a campus for microelectronics. Uh, some have pointed out you could use something similar to test a lot of components we need for space, for instance. So there are different sectors that this campus idea could be applicable to. And it also builds on the idea of what, um, you know, more and more people are recognizing that you need to have manufacturing adjacent to the innovation and the R&D, and that's actually what creates innovation. The research, development, and the manufacturing together helps to drive innovation. I think that's a great turn into a lot of the work you're doing at Hudson, especially with the Hamilton Commission. Um, I'd love for you just to introduce both the commission's work and the broad frame that you're approaching these policy topics through. Yeah, the first report came out in 2021, which looked at the battery supply chain. But the fundamental idea of the commission, it went back to Alexander Hamilton, who had spoken, who had written about the importance of a manufacturing base in the United States, of maintaining a manufacturing base and government's role in it. So this is an issue that has been around for quite some time, and that, that's where the name came from. We just thought we would take slices of the defense industrial base problem and look at parts of it in depth. Now, it's obviously a huge, incredibly complicated problem. Uh, we just focused initially on two areas, the battery supply chain uh, problem, which is relevant to electrification and other things that are dependent upon batteries. And the second was on energetics. I just mentioned that report. And the third, my my co-lead um, co on the commission, Arthur Herman, is now leading a study that will look at some of the workforce issues related to the space sector. And something I'm fascinated by is the debate around industrial policy. And I think the fact that you're focused on these critical sectors and focused on the defense industrial base 
helps you kind of navigate some of the difficulties. So the first episode of Arsenal of Democracy was with Hudson's and the Wall Street Journal's Walter Russell Mead. And during the conversation, Walter specifically kind of poo-pooed um, industrial policy, except in national security related sectors. I think where this gets difficult, and I love your perspective on it, is that it's pretty straightforward to articulate a national security tie and a critical resources tie to basically any imaginable sector that we're actually discussing in this first place here. So how would you think through the dynamics of the industrial policy debate, not in the 1990s or 2000s sense, but in the 2020s great power competition sense? Yeah, it's a really tough problem, especially given um, how critical I was about bureaucracy, the regulatory <laughs> environment, and essentially the ability of government to actually get things done in reasonable amounts of time. <laughs> so given that- I'm glad we um, went in this order then. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think that's a correct analysis. Given that, you know, what do you do about uh, how do you think about government's role in some of these big uh, sectors and these problem areas where the market has failed in many ways, where globalization has led to supply chains in which we uh, you know, don't know where our supplies are coming from, um, where we're in a situation now where we need to think about national security as a component and not just economic efficiencies. So, so the problem is real. I, I definitely share my colleague Walter's, you know, skepticism. And right now in, in conservative circles, Republican circles, there's like a big debate out there on what, what the, what industrial policy should look like. I like to think of it as, uh, what is the role of government in ensuring America's national security and economic competitiveness? Now that's a mouthful. So we're, we're just going to reduce that to industrial policy. But I think, I think it's right for a, a better word. One thing we can do is sort of reduce to the, to the local level as much as possible. So I think effective change will not happen at the federal level. The legislation might be there. The money might be there. Some of it might be there. But the actual nuts and bolts of getting things done will happen at the state and local level. So that's something that I can be more comfortable with and maybe more optimistic about. So if you look at states like Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, states that are actively building uh, campus-like ecosystems where universities and new manufacturing facilities are, states are providing incentives, companies going in are working more, you know, with local level governments as opposed to the federal government that just tends to be this big morass. So I think that's one way to look at and that look at it, and that's something that I'm interested in um, identifying those those successes. A lot remains to be seen with the CHIPS Act, right? I think it's something like $280 billion, depending on what you're counting, how much of it has been spent. This goes to my point earlier. Mm -hmm. We need to stop citing the passage of legislation as a policy outcome. <laughs> That's not enough. The passage of the legislation is just the beginning. Now we need journalists to actually look at how much money has been spent, how much money is likely to be spent over the next year, two years, three years, five years, uh, the level of bureaucracy surrounding uh, these new programs. It's not enough. And I think sometimes, you know, people can be very lazy about that. It's hard. I don't know where to find all of this information, but we need to start to work together to start to use those barometers of how much has been spent, how has it been spent, and is it being spent in the right way, in an effective way? Something I'd love to double down on, though, is your comment about globalization and the free market's inability to deliver certain aspects of the 
innovation or the productive capacity in the categories we're describing, because I think something the conservative members of the audience would be a little confused on is just sort of one of this country's inherent abilities is the fact that it's free market oriented, right? Like it's, you know, in the Soviet Union of the 1950s and 1960s and onwards is one where you have these top down industrial conglomerates that are obviously run um, by the government. And that's in contrast to our more free market oriented system. So just explain what you mean by uh, the free market failure in the 2020s context. Efficiencies drove uh, our investments in drove uh, drove the way the semiconductor industry looks today. It was much cheaper to produce key products abroad, right? Now we found that actually uh, we don't produce um, enough of those critical microelectronic components here in the United States. Most of the leading edge ones, so-called leading edge ones, are produced in Taiwan right now. TSMC, everyone knows the everyone most everyone knows that acronym. China as well for lesser, you know, for for different components. But our weapon systems are dependent right now on externally produced components. So that creates a national security weakness. The free market is not naturally going to rectify that. So that's how, you know, we started to look at, look at this problem. It would be great if businesses would say, okay, uh, we're going to put national security first and foremost, but most of them don't. And most of them aren't driven that way. Our system is not driven that way. Um, they have to respond to shareholders. They have to respond to short-term earnings calls, which leads to a disconnect between our national security imperatives and in some in some cases economic profits or economic efficiencies. So this is the dilemma that we're working uh you know working now. The world unfortunately it's not a free market out there, right? I mean, I think a key part of the 2017 strategy was to describe unequivocally uh, that the United States was being disadvantaged. My colleague Liza Tobin uh, coined this great term called brute force uh, economics, right? So the CCP is not operating under free market rules and hasn't been for quite some time. So we've been, the playing field is not level and we have to figure out how to manage that. And that's why we've seen part of this, you know, look at uh, legislation, tax incentives, what do you need to do to bring supply chains back to the United States or back to allies and partners. Um, and it's all happening um, because all of these other considerations are important as well. So I think a lot of listeners already know the top line of the supply chain challenge. Can you go a little deeper, though, to offer us a framework to understand the actual complexity of the issue? Yeah, I was thinking about this, about how to take, you know, what's a really complex problem and break it down into categories. Um, and I think there are four categories of problems um, and not probably not one person or entity can can look at all four. But one is just understanding the globalization part of it or the intertwined nature of it, right? And how, where everything is spread out in the world. The second is, is and related to this is visibility, right? Where are the parts coming from? Um, ensuring that as a company, you know where your components are coming from. How do you get that visibility once you know that there there's this intertwined uh, supply chain? The third is accountability. Who's responsible for what? Who's responsible for understanding uh, where things are coming from? Who's responsible for figuring out ways to maybe reduce your dependencies or mitigate your dependencies? So that's the accountability part. 
The final part is mitigation. This is a term government uses sometimes, but what do you do about it as a company? What's in your control as a company, but what actually is out of your control and what has to be fixed by the broader ecosystem? So I was trying to sort of work through an acronym. It wasn't very good. IVAM, right? Intertwined, visibility, accountability, and mitigation. But I think it's a start in sort of breaking down the problems, um, you know, even even for a business, the way that they might think about it. I just want to put uh, what a addendum to what you said, because I think that was the perfect articulation at the start of the challenge you're putting forth here, which is it's not helpful to just purely think of this as a whole of government challenge. You're saying specifically that no one entity or no one big entire, you know, U.S. federal government could approach all four of those different categories. So as you're thinking through these things, as we're getting into the timeline discussion, bracketing it by um, sector or entity would be incredibly important. Is that a, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, I think we have anytime something is that complex, you have to break it down into an area that you can work on. The type of persons interested in a podcast like this since 2020 um, and the early COVID period has heard we have these vulnerable supply chains. We have all these critical weaknesses. We need to balance once again, the challenges of efficiency in the free market with the fact that we need to have a functioning economy during a period of pandemics and great power competition. Everyone knows these objectives. There have been big bills to your point out the chips act. What progress have you, would you say has been made since 2020? And if we haven't achieved progress in the categories you're interested in, what are some timelines that you think would be helpful for policymakers to offer as the organizing principle going back to the start of the conversation? Um, I was afraid that you would ask me for a concrete path to a solution. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're, we're being very, we're, be, with... we're being very no. fair here. So yeah. Yeah. for the solutions yeah. people, like how should, how much progress has been made and what would be helpful timelines for them? Well, unfortunately, that's relatively easy uh, to answer because not a lot of concrete progress has been made. Progress has been made, to give everyone credit working on these issues, progress has been made in raising awareness of the issue. And that's important. That's always a first step in having companies, uh, having companies that make uh, a weapon system or a component of a platform ask, where are my parts coming from? So that's progress, and that's mm -hmm. important. Progress has been made in companies now specializing in helping the government and other companies figure out where their supply chains are coming from, because that's very complicated, right? Uh, these components, where they're, they're all over the world, and, and um, it's, it's really amazing, the complexity of it. So there's software now, there are companies specializing in this. There's an effort now to understand the nature of the problem. But actual progress on bringing microelectronics production back to the United States is still, it's, it's still in flux, right? We're seeing this happen now. It's just, it's moving toward there, but I don't know offhand, to be honest, you know, what successes we've had so far. And that takes time. Everyone knows it takes a long time to build a fabrication facility, which is called a fab. Um, it takes uh, a long time to train up many of the same um, scientists and physicists that are needed to do some of these jobs. So all of that takes time. But I do think, you know, to go back, you're right, to the beginning, Marshall, we do need to ask policymakers to give us an idea of the time it will take and the reg, um, the regulatory environment, what needs to be reduced, essentially, right? What needs to be stripped away. We rarely have to add more to get something done. Today, I think we actually need to take some things away <laughs> to, to get things done. But I had also written a piece about 
the Gantt chart, which is a manufacturing sort of tool from the 1900s. Uh, which is quite useful for today. There was an engineer named Henry Gant, and all he did on the manufacturing floor was sort of figure out how long it would take to get something done or figure out what needed to be done first uh, as a foundation, which you would build upon for the next activity and on and on. And today um, they're all over. They're used all over, especially by engineers. But we could think about many of the policy recommendations in that Gantt chart format, you know, what foundations do we need now mm-hmm. in order to get to where we want to be and how long will it take? I just want uh, people to sort of start to ask, you know, how and how long. So even though I referenced the popular focus on the industrial-based conversation 2020 um, with COVID and then 2022 with the munition side of things when it comes to the war in Ukraine, you obviously, when it came to the national security strategy, have been focused on this topic um, in 2017, but I'm sure the timeline and the history of this issue goes even deeper. We'd love for you just to recount some of the ways that we've been approaching this topic in the past. Unfortunately, we actually have been working on this topic for a long time. Um, and I found this pretty surprising when I went back a little bit to look at how often the Defense Department had tried to uh, understand better its vulnerabilities in, in many of these defense industrial base areas. And it turns out that at least since the late 1990s, Congress has been concerned about this issue um, and has asked the Department of Defense to identify all of its vulnerabilities. And there are these reports that are required in the National Defense Authorization Act, known as the NDAA. Um, and if you look at the reports over time, you see how many of the same points are made over time. And, you know, fast forward to one of the more recent really important reports um, that Ellen Lord led at the Defense Department in 2018. It's called the 13806 report. Sounds really boring, but it's actually <laughs> There's a, theme a really here when it comes interesting to these titles. study. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll, we'll put that down in the, um, in the lineup of what to read. Um, and there's another recent one, too, in 2019 and, and, um, and subsequent ones. But the point is, for a long time, we've been looking at these issues and seeing the same problems that appear over and over. And I think sometimes um, there's more time spent on the report writing and a documentation of the problems than, to go back to our earlier point, identifying uh, what obstacles have been to solving those problems and how we need to make progress on those. Well, and to tie this again to an earlier point you made, the metrics for success cannot be this big report was written that we could then reference right. in future conversations, along with your point that we can't just say, well, $280 billion were spent, therefore achievement. There's a, those are very, very, very intermediary steps. Um, and it seems that if we're looking at this from an analytical perspective, because this is a deeply analytical space, our problem is not our inability to pass spending packages and our problem is not our inability to write reports. It's the ability to have an implementable timeline that sorts through, um, previous work and the actual specific challenges and things need to be taken away rather than those things be added to the way you described that earlier. Right. And and we have the data to do that today, right? There is there's enormous amounts of data out there. They're brilliant engineers. There's AI. I believe that there's the capability to have much more transparency into these issues than we used to in the past. And that's a 
important because unless we actually achieve some successes along the way, and especially even on the domestic policy side where you see many of these same problems of paralysis, we reduce confidence in our democracy. And that also gets to one of the themes we talked about. We want government that, um, you know, can perform for the people, <laughs> that can achieve it, the objectives it set forth. I mean, I don't want big government. I personally don't want big government. Um, but when government is involved, at the very least, uh, we want it to be much more efficient and effective than it is. And I think today we have the d data, we have the ability to be more transparent about what's happening with our tax dollars and how long things are taking. Nadia, thank you so much for joining me on Arsenal of Democracy. Thank you so much, Marshall. It's a pleasure. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back with weekly episodes.